Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar. Bob is a longtime teaching pro in Westchester County, New York, and a former top 15 ranked player in the United States in the men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles in the late 1980s and early 90s. He is also the author of the path-breaking book, Deconstructing Tennis, The 4D System. The book lays out a simple and complete framework for how to use the time between points in tennis. Bob's co-host on Outside the Lines is Scott Shannon, also a teaching pro in Westchester, whose best ranking in men's open singles was number two in the East in 1980. He was also ranked number one in the East that year in doubles with Peter Bromley. Scott was also a top 10 player in the U.S. in 35 and over singles and doubles. Your hosts hope to help you get your mental approach more on target. Welcome to Outside the Lines. I'm your host, Bob Cheviar, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. We hope to put a new perspective on some of the issues having to do with the mental side of tennis. But before starting on today's subject, I just want to cut in because um, today Roger Federer is playing his third round match at Wimbledon. And Scott, what do you think about that matchup with Nori? How do you think Fed's going to do in that one? Well, um, I think that Federer is looking uh, very strong. He's serving quite well. Um, I still think he's uh, getting a, uh, a feel for matching up to the ball on the grass because he's every once in a while he's framing the ball uh, and whatever. And also there's a little bit of uh, slippage sometimes underfoot uh, on that uh, center court. Um, so I think he's uh, still getting, uh, you know, a little bit more settled into uh, the grass and everything, but uh, I think he's certainly uh, the favorite. Um, but this guy, Nuri, is a lefty and he's a home crowd uh, favorite um, and he can do some damage. So Federer is gonna have to keep his game up there uh, to get through this match. Yeah, he did appear to be playing um, quite a bit better than the opening round, so. Anyway, I'm here pulling for Fed. So um, in this initial podcast, uh, Scott and I are going to talk about uh, taking a look at Naomi Osaka's withdrawal from the French Open. Uh, and Scott, that started right with her first saying, uh, I'm not going to do press conferences. And then that ultimately led I think, to her withdrawal from the event. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Um, you know, when they, um, when they first heard that she was not going to do the conferences, uh, they fined her. And uh, at that point, things escalated uh, in the media. And then she withdrew herself from the tournament because she did not want to become a distraction to the tournament uh, and then went on to uh, begin explaining, you know, what has been happening 
uh, with her for the last uh, couple of years. Yeah, so I think what's what's interesting here is that when we talk about the mental side of tennis, it's not only your emotional well-being while you're in the middle of the match, but your entire emotional well-being is something that has to be really monitored by a player so that they feel they can go out there and do their best without any distractions. And I think uh, Osaka felt that the post-match interviews, particularly when she lost the match, were particularly taxing on her emotions, having to deal with what she felt were sort of intrusive questions about her game, which led then inevitably to a loss of confidence for her. Um, she's not alone in, in feeling that there's a lot of pressure and stress on the women's tour. For example, Paula Badosa, who was a quarterfinalist, she's from Spain, uh, at the French Open and just won another round today at Wimbledon, coming from a breakdown to win six, four and a third to get into the fourth round. Um, she said that for uh, years, she suffered from anxiety and depression because her results weren't up to what she was hoping for. Um, I don't know, Scott, I've always felt that um, a tennis player really needs to learn how to stay in process and not put all the weight only on the results. Of course they wanna win, but there has to be another focus that helps them get the most out of their game and their, their, their attitude. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I think as players, um, we can relate to that whole scenario. Um, and I think that you touched on something um, and they, the players have to have their own goals and be independent. Uh, of all of these pressures that come from from the outside, whether it's from their coach, from their from their parents, from their family, uh, and then the you know the fan base with someone like Naomi Osaka who has a huge following, uh, and you know she's you know she's a big fish now uh, in the tennis world uh, and still very young, you know she has to kind of stay true to herself and not get bounced around by all of these uh, numerous uh, pressures and everyone pulling at her or, you know, the expectations being, um, you know, outside of what she feels is uh, appropriate for her. It has to be something where it belongs to her and not to the rest of the world. So you were also saying you you felt that both her age and her personality, because she is sort of shy by nature, contributed to her negative feelings about these press conferences. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, uh, I think that uh, it's really uh, important for people from whatever point of view they're coming from to realize what 
happens with someone when at a young age, and I think she was, um, you know, 16 when she won her first slam. Um, and what begins to happen when you achieve that kind of success and where you are in your life uh, at that point in terms of maturity, um, you know, and not on a physical level, uh, but on the mental and emotional level, uh, and becomes potentially overwhelming uh, to experience that at that point in your life. And you're not really very prepared for that necessarily. I mean, some players are handling it better than others. Uh, and, you know, I have to assume that some are just kind of faking it, uh, but you're doing it because they have to do it. You know, I'm not thinking that anybody is, you know, just relishing the idea of getting in front of the microphone and getting in front of the TV camera uh, and, uh, you know, speaking about uh, the post-match, especially if you're the loser. Um, and, you know, also, some of the questions that come at them, as Naomi was saying, uh, are inappropriate and just trying to sensationalize the interview to the point for the viewership. Uh, and I think that that's something that the journalists have to uh, um, be careful of and sensitive to the players uh, to uh, you know not dehumanize them um, in the you know aftermatch. Mm -hmm. So to help prepare myself um, for this, our initial podcast, um, I searched around online and I happened to find a series of podcasts that uh, Azarenka had put together during the pandemic where she introduced, uh, interviewed various specialists in different areas. And one, one of the guys, these interviews took about an hour, they were very extensive, was Trevor Moad, who is what he calls himself a brain trainer. And his, one of his key concepts as he's training you to think like a champion, anyone, is that you can't be results oriented. You must have a process where you're giving yourself other goals in the heat of the battle. So for example, he worked with Drew Brees um, and uh, the other, uh, the great quarterback, Wilson. Russell Wilson. Yes. And they had three things they were trying to do at all times, remain balanced, keep contact with your teammates and observe what's going on. He felt if he, this, uh, Wilson felt if he got out there on the field and he was able to execute those three things, he wasn't worried about the end result of the game because it would take care of itself. Now, in that interview, he asked, Trevor did, asked Azarenka, what do you think about in the big moments of a match? And she basically said, get this point. And he sort of chuckled to himself and uh, said, we, we don't focus on outcomes in our training. We're focused on process. And she, she was quite surprised to hear that. She thought she had a real good mental toughness attitude, but 
mental toughness and putting those extra pressures on yourself sometimes don't help you um, if you do it in the form of get this point to perform under pressure. Um, so with that in mind, um, I had one idea to take a little bit of pressure off of tennis players for sure that at the end of a match, if you happen to come in second, that rather than putting your bag on your shoulder, waving to the crowd and walking off the court, that you be given the option of speaking to the crowd first before the winner speaks. And this wouldn't even be an interview. It would be where the runner-up could speak about what happened in the match, um, anything else uh, about the tournament, maybe thanking people, whatever they wanted to do. We do this now in tennis in the finals, but every other person who loses a match is just summarily dismissed. Now, to your point, um, you know, there are obligations uh, to do these interviews. And part of them, part of the reason for that is it's financial. Sponsors wanna see their person getting the attention to make the sponsorship worthwhile. Well, what better way for sponsors to get more value for what they're doing than to have their person win or lose speak at the end of a match. Now, we spoke about Nadal earlier um, in our private discussion, playing that incredible match with Djokovic at the French Open and how I'm sure people would have loved to have heard from him. Do you agree? Um, I do agree. And I think that it's uh, certainly up to the tournament to find these moments that have um, special value uh, for the benefit of not only the player who may like to address the crowd and his fans or her fans, uh, but to um, the, uh, the tennis world in general who would like to hear uh, some of the things that have run through that player's mind uh, in competing in the match because so many tennis players are interested in the details of the match and to hear a player uh, describe what they were thinking about or trying to do uh, in the middle of the match uh, as things unfolded is fascinating. And you and I being like um, interested in the mental side of the game, this is where we get insights as to, especially from the great players, you know, what began to happen in their heads when they were processing uh, how the match was going and whether they would change tactics or not. Uh, and the creative side of the, of the game uh, gets exposed from these masters. Um, so you're missing out potentially on a lot of that when you do not allow the loser to also speak. Um, so I think that it's an important, uh, you know, part of uh, the post-match um, experience is for people to hear also, you know, from 
from the other players. So you hear from both players. Now, I, I'm pretty sure this is correct, that the first time that Naomi Osaka played Corey Goff, it was a very emotional match and Naomi happened to win. But I believe that she invited Corey Goff to say a few words to the crowd before she left the court. And there was a great example of how we loved hearing from the runner-up, and this was not a final, but we loved hearing from the player who came in second and a few of her thoughts about the match. Now, there were a couple of matches in just this first week of Wimbledon. One, there was um, a British wild card, Katie Bolter, who played Sabalenka, the second seed, to a third set and really battled it out before losing in front of her home fans there in England. I'm sure those fans would have loved to have heard from Katie instead of her just waving and moving off the court. And then there was a fantastic men's first round match with Nick Kyrgios and Hugo Umber, which went to 9-7 in the fifth. Both men played an incredibly high level of tennis. And once again, we didn't get to hear from Ugo, but I, I, I'm pretty sure by the way he shook hands, he actually had a deep joy in how well he played, win or lose. I know, you know, as a pro, you've got to win, you've got to win, but this guy had a great attitude. Um, yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, unfortunately, I, uh, I think that... Uh, the closeness of that match, uh, nine seven in the fifth. Um, that was a first round match, right? Yes. And then and then Kyrgios won. He played a second match and then was playing again today. Yeah, he today and, he and, retired. He actually and then got, unfortunately had to had to uh, retire because his shoulder was blown out and he could only serve at like seventy percent. Uh, and they were speculating that, uh, you know, he had had uh, a tremendous uh, strain from the long, long first round match and then playing again. And, um, you know, he only said he trained hard for two weeks. So um, it may really not have been enough for him to uh, get ready for this. But um, yes, the... Um, the fans are the ones who really drive the sport and we need to find uh, those moments where, uh, you know, the, the tennis community, the tennis business uh, and the powers that be are, you know, making that available at, 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 at every moment that they can. I think, um, well, just um, to, finish up with Kyrgios, he, uh, he also played in the mixed doubles with Venus. Yesterday, right. a long match, 7-5 in the third, they won. Um, if anyone gets a chance to watch that match on demand, you will learn so much about how to play mixed doubles. Nick Kyrgios, I don't really know him as a doubles player, but he played against this Austin Krychek, who's a well-respected member of the men's doubles tour and one of the better doubles players in the world who really knows doubles. And Kyrgios um, had a great response for playing him, which was basically like 
this guy moves around a lot. I'm hitting every ball down the line. <laughs> and sure enough, um, he really neutralized him to a large degree. It's a great match to watch if you want to learn about mixed doubles. But one other point that I think is important that goes to having the losers speak more, and whether it's the interview on the court or the interview in the booth with the um, tennis uh, sportscasters, and that's the example we're setting for our kids. Right now, losers are sort of stigmatized in the way that they're ignored as soon as the match is over and sort of just left on their own. It would be a wonderful message because we're sending this message to kids all the time that it's not so much whether you win or lose, but how you play the game, that kids would begin to see, wow, in tennis, you don't have to win to be recognized and respected for what you accomplished and what you did out there on the court. I think it would be a fantastic uh, role model for the sport itself to adopt this as a, as a new way of going. And I have two thoughts on that, Bob. Um, you know, I think you uh, are hitting right right to the heart of uh, the problem where young players very often are feeling tremendous amounts of pressure to win. And, you know, the saying could be, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how well respected you are after the match. <laughs> so that if somebody, especially a junior, feels that he or she can lose the match and come off and still feel good about themselves and feel good about their game, even though they have things that they can learn, uh, they should feel good in terms of, hey, I went out, I competed, I did my best, I was a good sport, uh, I lost the match. You know, every day there's going to be 50% losers. So, you know, the, the thing that maybe we're touching on with the mental part of the game and the emotional part is that when you sit stigmatize the losers and you kind of, you know, sh shuffle them away very quickly after a match, the whole idea is that they are devalued and people do not want to be devalued. So they're feeling pressure when they're, when they're in these situations because they feel uh, that that possibly could happen if they are the loser of the match. If we begin to minimize that impact, that after the match impact, then I think young players will feel uh, more emboldened to go out there and play and do their best and then not worry so much about being the winner or being the loser. Because, you know, th this, this goes, you know, goes to the heart of, like why you play tennis. Do you play tennis for pleasure? And do you play tennis for fun and all the other good things that go along with it? Or are you only there for the rankings? And then later on as a professional, if you get that level, is it all about your, your money, your, your prize money winnings and your uh, endorsements and then how much money you're making? So, it, these are all like specific, um, you know, things that can uh, trip up uh, young players emotionally uh, to go out on the court and be free 
of all these, you know, um, contrived uh, values, whereas it really should be that you go out there and you just do your best and you try to enjoy uh, the tennis and the match uh, as best you can. Yeah, I'll just share a, a quick story from my own playing career. In, in the men's 35s, there was one year where a player here in the East, Rick Liebman, was basically undefeated. And John James didn't play that year. That's why he was undefeated. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I then, at the beginning of the next season, I had to play Rick. I think in the quarters or semis of one of Lloyd Emanuel's big tournaments out in Long Island. And he ended up, I was up a break in the third. He ended up beating me six, four in the third. But when he shook my hand, he said, I hope I never play you again. <laughs> so I knew I had done a great job out there. He was just playing at a very high level. And I happened to come in second that day, but that was a wonderful compliment to receive. Now, admittedly, I'm not playing for millions of dollars when I was out there and those pressures might change it a little bit. But the idea that I think every player at their own level likes to come away from uh, a match or a tournament feeling like they did their best. Yeah, um, I, uh, I, uh, hold on one second, Bob. Yeah. Players do, players, players do have uh, their own personal um, value systems and what it means to them. Uh, and I think that that's really a great example and a great thing coming from you that, uh, you know, you felt you had really, you know, been in there and had done some damage and had competed in the match in a uh, respectable way uh, and certainly could have been the winner in the match because it was that close. Um, so, uh, I think that's a, a, a very good example of uh, what we're trying to get at in terms of the mental side of uh, playing competitively in tennis. Yeah, so I'd just like to bring it back to Osaka and say, um, I think one of the reasons she felt so much pressure is that she's right now, she hasn't had the brain training that a guy like Trevor could give to her to make her goals more process oriented instead of results oriented. Results come when the processes are good. Um, I have several students, again, this level isn't at the top pro level, but they sort of wholeheartedly jumped into this idea like it's process first and they're having a great time playing and they're being extremely successful on the court. Uh, so unless there's something else you'd like to add, I'd just like to say to our listeners, we think that this idea of giving the losers more of a voice 
after professional matches could really be a giant forward stepping stone for tennis as a sport and for the participants and for the fans. If you like this idea, you should talk to your pro, you should talk to the, your USTA friends who might uh, work for the USTA. You should send an email maybe to um, the USTA and let them know, hey, here's an idea. And maybe with a little luck, if enough people listen to this and you pass it on to your friends, for this year's US Open, we could have a much more open environment for both the winners and the losers. Yeah, um, I think it has to come from the fans. Uh, I think that uh, that's what the uh, USTA uh, will mostly respect. Uh, and that's where the pressure uh, can be applied from. Um, you know, they, if they feel that this is not going to really make much of a difference, then they probably don't want to borrow with it, bother with it. But if they do feel that it's going to be well received and that people will watch the interviews, I think you were right. A lot of people would love to have heard from uh, Nadal after that semifinal match at the at the French against Djokovic. Um, and you know there there are. Um, so many things that are changed uh, if you get a groundswell of, uh, of public opinion from the, the tennis world and the USTA uh, begins to realize um, what it is. So Scott, I want to thank you for joining me today for our initial podcast of Outside the Lines. And I want to tell our listeners that we'll, we'll be back fairly soon with another podcast most likely something to do with the mental game. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure.